Hey everyone, welcome to Who's Training Who, Episode 5. I'm Tom. I'm Allie. This podcast is all about dogs. We talk training, behavior, give tips and tricks, talk to people who do cool things with dogs and or for dogs. We hope that by listening to this podcast, we can help you have a better relationship with your dog and any dog you meet. On today's episode, Amber Walker of Animal Intuitions is going to talk about working with zoo animals and how that correlates with working with dogs. So let's get started. Welcome to the show, Amber. Thank you. So I'm excited to chat with you because in high school, I was choosing between working in television, being a firefighter, or working in a zoo. At least at the time, didn't know much about it, but was like, I just want to work with zoo animals. And so I'm just kind of excited to hear about your history of how you got into that and do it. So let's start with that. So tell us a little bit about how you got to working with zoo animals and how that to where you are now working with dogs. Okay, awesome. Uh, so yeah, zoo animals. I went to my junior year of high school. My mom, I wanted to go into marine biology. Marine biology was my life. My mom said, if you exclusively study something that narrow, you're really going to struggle with the career. And so my mom encouraged me to study zoology, to broaden the horizon of the topic, still go into animals, but just broaden it. So, um, yeah. So then I went to Southern Illinois University in Carbondale and I got my bachelor's in zoology. Then, you know, you start the adventure of trying to find work. And so I was able, um, Brookfield Zoo was my first paid job. Um, you know, I had volunteered and whatnot in different, you know, animal stuff prior to that. That was my first paid job. I started off in the children's zoo. That's a really good stepping stone. You know, the goats and the llamas and the pigs and the, you know, it's, it's, it was such a, an amazing, uh, a place to start a great learning place. Um, so I was there for four years at Brookfield and then I got offered a position in Alaska. So I left Brookfield and I went to Alaska and I went to the Alaska Sea Life Center and I did rescue and rehabilitation. And I was there for just under a year. And um, I also um, was in the uh, aviculture department, which was the puffins and the kitty wakes, all the birds, all the Arctic birds. And so I, I worked between, you know, those two teams and um, very awesome. But I got burned out really fast because rescue rehab is 24 hours. It is brutal. It is my, my work shift itself was raising a, a, a baby sea otter from midnight to 10 AM every day. So I had the midnight shift and it was amazing. But then when you work all night or the husbandry side, and then you get rescues all day, you know, they try and give you time off, but it doesn't always work like that when an animal needs stranded animal needs to be rescued. So I was burned out. Um, so I called my mom and I said, I need you to book me a plane ticket home. And she's like, nope, I'm not doing it. And I said, no, no, you need to, you need to, I need to come. She goes, if you leave Alaska, you won't go back. So she, I told her I needed it. She booked it. She was right. I never went back. Um, three months later, after I slept, I slept for three months. And three months later, I tried to go back as a mammologist at the Sea Life Center. And um, they said, Amber, we'd love to take you. You're our first choice, but we're not going to relocate you. So that started the, where am I going to work? Back here at home in Illinois. So then I went back to Brookfield Zoo. Um, it worked out really, really well. My friend was exiting a position and I took her position. 
So that was on the Seven Seas team. Uh, so Seven Seas is all the marine mammals. So that was where I got my, um, like the marine mammal husbandry side, as opposed to the marine mammal rescue side, which are very different experiences. And so I was at uh, Seven Seas for one year. And then I left Seven Seas. I went to Phillips Park Zoo for three months. And then I got hired at Walt Disney World at Animal Kingdom. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry, Phillips Park Zoo. I'm going to go to Animal Kingdom at Disney. And they're a wonderful zoo and they're amazing, but I couldn't pass up uh, Disney. And I kind of laughed that the the Disney opportunity was um, because, you know, you hate to say it's who you know, but it is. Any career you're in is networking. And I happen to know somebody who talked to the right manager at the right time and, and I got offered the position. Um, so yeah, I went to, to, uh, Disney's animal kingdom for two years, loved it. Um, and then, um, uh, my husband and I were, uh, dating and he proposed. And so it kind of came down to the, where are we going to live? His business that he owns is based out of Aurora, Illinois. And my work was in Orlando, Florida. So we looked at both places and as much as I love Disney, they don't pay a lot. And that's not a secret. Um, they pay they pay in perks, uh, free admission to all the parks, uh, things like that. Guest passes, you get paid in perks. It doesn't pay the bills. So um, based on, unfortunately, salary alone, uh, we came back to the Aurora area um, where his business is and is doing fantastic. So then I came back and and at that point, I needed to reevaluate what was I going to do? Was I going to try and go back into the zoo field, which, you know, I had been applying and interviewing and I was being, you know, passed up, passed up, passed up. So then I, I had a friend that I'd been mentoring in Florida because um, I was just volunteering with her. I loved dogs. I loved her. I loved her place. She has an incredible place in Florida um, for, for dogs. And so I was just mentoring and volunteering because I liked it. And she had said, go to PetSmart. And she said, because you will have um, a carousel of dogs, you will find out if this is something that you want to do. And the reason I was transitioning in to thinking about doing dogs is the schedule of the zoo is very rough. You work holidays, you work weekends, you work, um, you know, it, it, it just, it's a very uncertain schedule. Um, and with my husband at the time where we wanted, we we're get, going to be getting married. We wanted to be having a family and that ultimately was not the, the schedule that we wanted me to have. So that was the transition to start looking into dogs. So then I did go to PetSmart. I was there for like eight months and then I started my own business. So I started Animal Intuitions in 2012. That might not be right. I might be off a little. I think it was 2012. I did that for, I mean, I was starting the, the owning your own business side. And then I went to Karen Pryor Academy. Um, now the zoos are, um, Karen Pryor is, is who the zoos look up to on how they, uh, protocols and, and whatnot. So I knew that the, um, that the academy for, um, for animal behavior and training would be exactly what I needed, though very expensive because it's going back to school. We were able to get myself in. And uh, so, yeah, so I graduated Karen Pryor Academy. And after I graduated, I thought, wow, I was trying to run a business without like, I didn't know what I didn't know, you know, and now I use so much that go into the dog side, um, the behavior, the management. Um, and 
the people. Um, so I had a different skill set in the zoo of dealing with people and dealing with, you know, the activists or the extremists that would come in and, and talk to, you know, want information or, you know, debates about, you know, the zoo stuff. And then now to switch over into the dog world, it was a different people skill set. Now it was a teaching people skill set. Um, so it was, uh, so yeah, Animal Intuitions I've been running um, ever since. And I do still consult for zoos and aquariums. So I will get, um, I will get videos and, you know, of trainers and animals that they'll want me to, you know, just review the video and just give feedback. Or um, I'll, you know, get, um, you know, if I've gone to, a lot of zoos that are local to us, the smaller ones, you know, Brookfield doesn't need me, Shedd Aquarium doesn't need me, but the smaller zoos and whatnot, they will bring me out and have me watch the trainer, watch the animal. How is the, how well is the trainer communicating to the animal? How is the animal perceiving the session? You know, where can we make adjustments? Um, So present day, I'm a lot of mommy because I have two kids. So that's a lot of my world. And then I'm consulting. And I do the dogs through animal intuitions. So has there been a difference from when you started to, and now you're just kind of consulting and you're there every day, but has there been a difference in how they treat the animals, how they interact with the animals? I have found it to not really have changed from when I was there. So in the last 20 years, I don't feel like there's been that much change. We were all using positive reinforcement. We were all, you know, looking to the greats of the animal world. Uh, Karen Pryor, Ken Ramirez, um, you know, these people that just do amazing things. Um, But prior to that, not even too much before that, you know, the the middle 90s, there were things that were still legal to do, you know, wild animal captures, things like that, that are no longer legal and, and are no longer, you know, practiced today. But that was just even in the middle 90s. I wasn't, you know, in the zoo. So I felt like actually late 90s is probably when the major zoo turn and changes happened. And then I joined in after that. And I feel like my run has been pretty consistent. Um, There's really, um, there's really great organizations. Um, AZA is Animal or uh, Association of Zoos and Aquariums. Um, And then you have the uh, Zoological Association, boy, Oh, I know the zoological association, blah, blah, blah. I'm sorry. I can't think of that. Um, and those are accreditations that zoos can get. Um, and by having that, that saying that they are withholding really high certain standards of, you know, maintaining quality and, and whatnot for, you know, the zoos, whether it be how the enclosure is arranged or how the food is prepared, um, or what they're eating, things like that. Not every zoo that exists is accredited. It's an extremely expensive, um, avenue to go, but, uh, there are then, so like the AZA is very expensive and you've got Disney's Animal Kingdom, Brookfield Zoo, Chet Aquarium, a lot of these larger San Diego zoo. I mean, any name, any large, uh, you know, nationally recognized zoo, they're going to be AZA accredited. You start getting to the smaller zoos that have really high standards. They just can't afford, they can't afford what that costs. So then they'll go to like the ZA, ZHAA to a little less money, or they just won't accredit, but they'll just do really, you know, as high standards as they can. But then you have craft zoos. There are craft zoos. And, you know, that's where you, if you are going to visit a zoo, support a zoo, give your money, or even, you know, a wild animal rescue, um, you have to, got to research it, you know, learn a little bit about it, um, before you, you know, go all in. But so I would say in my time, I've not seen a significant change in how the zoos are. It was just, you know, within a decade before me. 
So going back to Disney's Animal Kingdom, I'm a big Disney person. I love Animal Kingdom. Um, I'm really jealous that you get to work there and got to work with all the animals. I did the rhino tour behind behind the scenes rhino tour, which was a lot of fun. I've never touched a rhino before, but that was a really cool experience. To... Did you touch his armpit? Because they're really soft. No, we uh, all we were allowed to do was to touch the body, and then it was okay. like it was like sandpaper, and it was really weird. Yeah. Um, but to the question about it, so a lot of people. Whether they remember or they don't, Disney's Animal Kingdom got a lot of hate in the beginning from a lot of groups that, you know, they're opening up a zoo. It's just a zoo. It's just a zoo. How does the Disney's Animal Kingdom compare to other zoos around the country since you've worked, you've, you've you know? So what was cool that Disney did is, that I just shared with you about the accreditation. So, of course, Disney was going to get accredited, accredited because that, you know, is, is a standard they wanted to withhold. But what they did is they took the standards and they almost doubled them. So let's say that you have to have a 10-foot fence for this particular animal. Disney made their fence 20-foot. And then you have to have a 6-foot moat for this animal. Disney made it 15-foot. So they really took, because they had you know the ability, the means to do so, they took those standards, which are extremely high already, and they, they in some cases, they doubled them. So that was one thing that was really impressive. Um, the other thing was the research that went into the animal areas and how they their goal for the outside areas, you know, where the most part of the public is viewing them, um, the research went into making them as realistic to habitat as possible that they would find out in the wild um, from their native you know, location. Um, and then their indoor enclosures where they would be in holding overnight, because as far as I know, there's no animal that's left outside overnight. Um, so when the animals, they come in, um, they are, uh, you know, it's a very cush, luxurious, you know, place to be inside. It's not some tight little cage, you know, it's a, it's a well thought out, well designed, um, enclosure indoors, which the public wouldn't even see and outdoors. Right. Um, but, uh, we did yeah. a behind the scenes tour and the guy's like, sometimes they have trouble getting the animals outside of the inside enclosures in the middle of the <laughs> summer because the animals know better. Yes. They know like, Hey, this is cooler <laughs> in here. I don't want to be outside in the heat. So another thing that they do, uh, you know, better than than a lot of places is their enrichment calendars. Um, so a lot of the the areas have these calendars that there's a different enrichment item or you know activity on that calendar, and then that animal will not see that again for another thirty days. So every day on the calendar um, is a different enrichment, you know, interaction for them to have. Uh, so that's very 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 cool that they do. Um, and then also training, their training is top notch. So that, you know, definitely training falls as an enrichment as well, um, for, for both the, the animals husbandry and just for fun. Um, so yeah, that was a very cool thing that they did too, is that enrichment calendar I really liked. So to become an animal care specialist, whether it's at Disney's animal kingdom or any zoo, is there, do you have to know training before you go in or like, what, what do you have to know? for anybody who maybe wants to be one someday or, or like, you know, to help their kids or what, what do they have to do? So you have to have a degree in a life science. Um, so biology, um, zoology, you know, any of those, 
even psychology is a life science. So I know a lot of um, a lot of animal care specialists that are have psychology degrees, even dog trainers that have psychology degrees. That's where they got their their base from. Um, so life science is required. Um, they want as much experience as possible. So that's where your volunteering, your internships, things like that come in. So those are really important. Um, you know, as I said earlier, you know, you hate to say it, but there's a lot of networking who, you know, and, and I myself have helped a significant chunk of you know, right out of college, kids find themselves work um, in zoos and aquariums because I'm a network, you know, I'm somebody to know. Um, if you, you know, submit your internet or your resume to the black hole of the internet, yeah, there's a good chance you're not going to hear back from anybody. But, you know, um, so those are, are really important. Already having like, I will tell you my very first zoo job at Brookfield um, was the worst interview I'd ever had in my entire life. And I told them to get the cow into the barn, they should push it. And that's how you got the cow to move was by pushing. it. That's a wrong answer. It is the right answer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> proper training and husbandry or just a lead and a halter. <laughs> that would also be a better way. Food luring, if anything else. <laughs> Food luring is just fine. Um, so you can have really bad interviews and give really bad information. And, and uh, the one thing that I, I never forgot was the, the person that interviewed me had said was that I had passion. He said, I can teach you everything else that you need to know to be here, but I cannot teach you passion. You have to have that. I have to be able to feel that. I have to be able to see that. And I do. And so I'm going to offer you the, you know, this position. So you do not have to have a information or a base or a skill set in training or diets or nutrition or husbandry or grooming or, you know, any of those things. Um, but you have to have a, a life science degree and they want as many, as much experience as possible. So you kind of have in theory, a clue. Um, but, uh, yeah, volunteering and internships are your best friends. If you are, you know, wanting to enter the, the zoo field, certainly. All right. So trying to tie this back into training and dogs, is there a difference in training like a dolphin compared to a lion? Is the concept the same or are, are there things you have to do differently for the animal? So with animals, the, the concept is the same. It doesn't matter the animal, the size, the breed, the species, every animal in the zoo is trained the same concept. Now, there are variants within that concept, but the concept is the likelihood that you, the animal, will repeat what I would like you to do again if you get rewarded for it. That's the basic concept. You're going to repeat something because you get rewarded for it. In the zoo, our rewards are primarily food. It is primarily the diet. A lot of it is time constraints. We don't have all the time in the world to use outside re secondary reinforcements, but other reinforcements besides food. I will squash the myth right now. The animals are not starved. They are not. This is just their mealtime that they would be being fed. Most of the, especially the large, large animals, the most popular animals, you know, not a little gecko, you know, but the, the lions, the tigers, the bears, the dolphins, the giraffes, those animals are all trained for their meal. So that is how they get to, that's how they get their meal in them. So it's kind um, of like a, like, like a stuffle mat for a dog to a point. Yes, it's just, it's an, exactly. it's an enrichment based eating yes. instead of yes, just put it in a bowl eating. and here you go. 
Yes. But then the animals have, you know, as we talked about earlier, the, you know, other formal enrichment that does have food and then browse, which is tree branches is another huge one. So they definitely throughout the day get to eat and graze and munch and snack, but then their actual meals are used for training. So the concept of you do what you, you do this behavior and I'm going to give you reinforcement for, it. I'm going to give you your food for it. Um, and they love it. You know, they love being able to, to, to work for their food essentially that, yeah. But then depending, yes, some animals you have protected contact, meaning there's a barrier or a fence. So yeah, that's going to look a little different than if you're, you know, right, you know, in with your animal, um, you know, and then there's different training tools that you can use that. Yes, that all looks different depending on the animal, but the actual, and by tool, I mean, are using a target pull or using your hand to do like a, a, in the dog world, we would say a nose touch in the zoo world, it's a, a target, um, a target behavior. So those details are different depending on the animal. The overall principles are the same, no matter what. So before we get into the training part, which, which is harder training dogs or training zoo animals? The animals are easy. It's the humans that are hard. <laughs> I, to, but to answer your question, you know, a little more realistically, I think that with dogs who live in our homes, we are required to also come with a management plan. These zoo animals, I say goodnight after I lock your enclosure at the end of the day. Um, so there is a giant difference between having that animal who lives in your home and doing training versus that animal that's you know staying at the zoo. Um, but the animal physically training it, you know, the physical training concept itself, I, it doesn't it it doesn't matter on the animal for in my opinion. So, no, because I trained a dolphin once that had no skill set at all. Nothing. He couldn't, he couldn't grasp anything. He couldn't. It was like, are you kidding me? You're one of the smartest animals in the animal kingdom. And, and then it's not like it was a poor trainer. It was the animal because he was, he passed around all the different trainers and he just, he didn't get it. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't get it. I was just, that's just um, the way he is. I was just him. So I definitely find um, individual animals to be smarter than other individual animals. But as far as a, a species, they, they can both have their scale of intelligence. Food is food. And it's a huge motivator for a lot food of animals. Is food, yes. So at least in zoos from at least 2001 is mm -hmm. mostly positive based training. There might be still Absolutely. some zoos that are using aversive training stuff. Yes. So why do you Definitely. think why do you think positive based training hasn't caught as much momentum as it could in the dog world? Why are there? Why do you think people still believe that I need to put a shock collar on an eighty five pound dog when you see trainers working with dolphins or lions and or I mean especially dolphins who you know especially in some of the zoos you go to they get up and they they're by you and they they don't hurt you. I've I've swam with dolphins at um at at Epcot at Disney and you know like. I was taken back by how big and strong they were <laughs> that this dolphin, if he really wanted to, could just swing his tail and I'm dead. Like, I mean, oh, yeah, he could kill you. Yeah. <laughs> and so, but why do you think people still think we need this control over dogs that we need to use it with shock collars? We need to use, you know, whatever, whatever aversive method. I think there's a couple different folds to that. I think one of them is that is how we thought we had to train dogs a long, long, long time ago. And I think that that information truly gets passed on to generation to generation to generation. And there simply isn't even the knowledge that there is a different way to do it. Um, and I, you know, my, my husband, when we got married and, and I, we had a dog and 
uh, we were talking about training and, you know, he wanted to do this. And I said, you know, but we don't, we don't need to do that. And he, he said, until he met me, he didn't know there was any other way to train a dog. And he was a, you know, 30 year old adult and he, he didn't know there were any other options. So I think that's one is that it's just been passed down. It's how we've always done it. And then number two is I do think that there is uh, speed to aversive training. I think that a lot of times the owners will see very quick results. Positive reinforcement takes a little longer. It truly does, but it it is the, the better way to have a relationship with your animal. Um, but that aversive, I think you get, you can see much quicker results. And I think people like quick, they want it to be done. You know, they want to send their dog away for two weeks and come back with the perfect, you know, all American golden retriever. Um, so I think that those are two main reasons. One, it's just a generational Passover and two, uh, it's quick, it's quick and, you know, it's down and dirty and fast. Yeah. And I think it goes to that. People just don't know the difference. They just, you know, they think, Hey, the dog's sitting there and not doing anything. And they think that's okay. And when in reality, the dog is, is, is shut down. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And I, I know you've talked about behavior in the past, um, past podcast, but you know, so naive to their own dog's communication, what their dog is saying to them. They're saying, yeah, I am shutting down when, when, you know, the owner is thinking, Oh, what a wonderful dog I have. So we've talked about enrichment with dogs. And so, and you've talked about enrichment with zoo animals. I don't know if people totally understand besides what they see on stage of, you know, the, the, uh, in their enclosure with food and whatnot, what else, what other kind of enrichment do you do with the zoo animal? Cause you know, like you said, you go home at night and you say bye and you close the gate. Is, is it a 24 hour thing? Do they, I mean, obviously they, they get to sleep. Um, is it just all day? Is there just all enrichment? Do they ever get time to just relax and be an animal? Some of the enrichment that you will see, I think probably some of our favorite enrichment is frozen enrichment. So, and that can be for any animal. Um, you know, you'll see it a lot with the marine animals, the polar bears, the penguins that you'll take, you know, food or, you know, treats that are treats, you know, treat appropriate to, to the species. You put it in a block of ice and then you throw it out there and then they get to spend the, you know, the day pecking away at it and, and trying to, you know, get the, the food item out. Um, so that's a really popular one. Uh, another one that we like to do is scents or smells um, take different, um, you know, if, if an animal is from a particular you know, country, then if you take a flower or a, an oil, you know, an, a, an essential oil kind of a fragrance from a place that they would have never, you know, put that, you can put that on their wall, their, you know, their enclosure wall. Or um, I remember with the, I think it was the bears, we used to smear, some, we put something on the wall. I can't remember what it was. It was a long time ago, but I remember we would put a fragrance on the wall in the rocks and and they would just kind of sniff it, you know, something different. So enrichment can come in any form. It doesn't even necessarily have to be a physical interaction. It can be in um, an olfactory or, you know, audio or something. And even so much as there is one zoo that I know of, and there's only one zoo that I know that does this, and I, I don't even know how I feel about it, but they put fake predators in with the prey animals because they said enrichment doesn't have to be positive. Enrichment just has to change the environment. And I, I have never forgotten that. <laughs> but so these are fake they're animals? They're fake, like shadows. You know, they put a hawk shadow uh, up on the, or they'd have like a cardboard cutout of a fake predator and they would put that in there. Um, well, and I guess, I mean, that would be enriching. Enrichment. 
Um, <laughs> well, I mean, with like my personal dog, because I know she's not going to swallow things. I let her destroy plush toys oh, yeah. and chewy toys. We did that with Hadley that, too. So yeah. is it necessarily is it different <laughs> if I give her a stuffed animal squirrel? Yeah. I don't that, know. <laughs> and it's not a negative experience right. for Right. those tree branches that I had mentioned earlier, um, you'll hide things in there like apple slices or carrots or something, you know, so when they go for the browse, then all this other like bonus stuff falls out. So that was always really fun to do was to have the hidden, um, uh, you know, enrichment. It wasn't just a toy that they were handed, but you took something that they really liked to either consume or typically it's food. Um, and you hide it, you know, somewhere in the environment. So they're just going around their day. They don't think they have any enrichment that day. And then, bam, there's a carrot, you know, under the rock. So that was always really exciting. All right. So zoos have a bad reputation and, you know, that they cage animals. They don't let them be their natural selves. And we kind of have that in the dog world too, with certain breeds where, you know, they genetics, people think that dogs are born a certain way, but I don't think a lot of people realize zoo animals, a lot of them, a lot of them haven't even seen the wild. They're most of them nowadays, they're born in captivity. Do you think they're losing some of their wildness, if that's the way to describe it? Or do, do they, they still deep down, it's still a lion, it's still a giraffe. They still have those same instincts. They're just like dogs, even though dogs are domesticated, doesn't mean that they don't have the capability to bite somebody. They just might not. Do you see that in the, in the zoo world? I think that is an amazing question that very few people have ever asked. There is a program within all of the reputable, responsible zoos called the SSP, the Species Survival Plan. It is a meticulously created program for breeding animals in captivity. It makes sure in no uncertain terms that there is any crossbreeding between family members, that there is any uh, breeding that is inappropriate or unmonitored. And yes, we don't take animals from the wild anymore, but yes, we used to. That is how zoos started a long time ago. You did take animals from the wild. That has not happened in decades. So uh, that's great. But to, you know, to answer your question, a wild animal is still absolutely a wild animal. Um, I do not believe that we are genetically changing our zoo animals to be more domesticated by being in captivity at all. Um, and with that, that SSP program that, that I was just talking about, that is also ensuring that the, the species is continuing on in the most uh, responsible way possible so that we can have these animals that, that folks can visit zoos and, and create these bonds and relationships and then take what they, you know, get from the passion they gain from the zoo, take that to now go and help the animals that are in the wilds that do, you know, need our help, the endangered animals, or don't even have to be endangered. Just, you know, if you fall in love with an animal that you get to come eye to eye with, you know, uh, at a zoo, and now you're going to go and be, you know, an advocate or a spokesperson for that animal in the wild, like you can ask for a better, you know, connection of, of a zoo animal who is very much still wild 
who was bred with, you know, extreme responsibility and then take that to the people that want to go, you know, and, and, and make that, make that passion wild, make that, take that out to the rainforest, take that out to the, you know, wherever, whatever animal it was that they fell in love with. The best time to train a dog is 12 to 18 weeks. Usually that's, you know, around there is the best time that you can, that the dog is going to learn everything. It's a sponge. Is that kind of how it is with, with, with zoo? I mean, I'm saying zoo animals, I guess every other animal that, that you've worked with. Is it kind of the same way? Can you, I mean, could you take a tiger and just like Tiger King and where everyone's holding the the baby, you know, tigers and can you train a tiger if you get it when it's just born to be totally comfortable around humans where you can maybe have 80% trust that it's not going to bite you where like you can, mm-hmm. you know, you can live with it. They can sit on the couch and at least, you know, you don't have to worry about that. With the zoo animals, absolutely. There's imprinting in all animals. So you've got that early stage where you can create um, you know, that, that bonds with that and that exotic animal. And, you know, yes, the animal might then grow up and, and, you know, have that 80%, you know, trust with them, but I don't condone it. Um, I don't <laughs> because that animal is going to hit maturity when that animal hits maturity, when that zoo animal or that exotic animal hits maturity, a lot of times all bets are off. So that 80% trust that you had with them when they were premature goes out the window. Um, I can tell you there, I had a friend who is an exotic vet. She had somebody that had a pet kangaroo and they had raised that pet kangaroo from a little itty bitty thing. And then he hit puberty, kangaroo puberty. And that he was violent and aggressive and he did not care that that owner had raised him from little, you know, baby Joey because he now is his DNA is still telling him that he has a job to procreate, to, you know, defend his territory. So yes, you, I mean, there are, I mean, Tiger King was such a great example. There are people that have super trust with these animals that they raise from, you know, little, little infants. Um, I do know keepers today that have raised certain species of animals from, you know, bottle fed them, took them home because of the, you know, whatever it was they, they needed. Um, and they will still interact with that animal different than the other keepers would because of the relationship they created with that animal. Um, but I still wouldn't turn my back on that animal. I still wouldn't, you know, they're a wild animal. They're a wild, wild animal. As I say, we could talk about social maturity (laughs) and dogs where genetics kick in too. And while they are not a wild animal, you see a lot of crazy shit when social maturity hits dogs, (laughs) a genetics, like just take over. And some dogs are easy to get through it. And some dogs are not. And sometimes it is clear when they're in it. And sometimes it is not. Um, I mean, I had two completely different experiences with social maturity between Chunk and Hunk. I mean, (laughs) Chunk's social maturity was just like, I hate men and I want to literally kill them. And I hate other dogs and I want to kill them. And Hunk's social maturity was like, so there's this thing that's been in the yard for three weeks, but all of a sudden tonight I'm feeling myself. So I'm going to go bark (laughs) at it. But if you come out here with treats, I'll never bark at it again. <laughs> so two totally different experiences of social maturity, but I don't know if I knew what to look for with Hunk. Which one is the pineapple? Who is the pineapple dog? Chunk or Hunk? Chunk. 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 Okay. 
Because yeah. she's so sweet and kind. I can't imagine her wanting no. to eat everybody. No, <laughs> she wanted to kill any man How funny. in the world and every dog in the world. And uh-huh. um, mom buckled down and um, got her on meds and got her on an awesome training plan and busted her ass in lots and lots and lots of counter conditioning. And um, the, the goal was just to... Um, get her to be non-reactive on walks, you know, the rest could be managed. Um, then the goal became, I want to get her into safe, humane lifetime bonds, which has young men in the program, um, and other dogs that became my, my training goal with chunk. And I said, okay, we're going to do more counter conditioning. And then now she is who she is. And <laughs> she only nice. wants to kill people for like two seconds. And then she gets Perfect. over it because mom redressed. <laughs> Or she doesn't want to kill anybody at all. I don't know. Some some days, I just don't know. It's like playing the lottery. <laughs> but her reactions to dogs are are less uh, less severe, and uh, she hasn't bitten anybody. So that's positive. Hey, right well, there. that's good. Yeah, I feel like I'm winning as a dog mom. <laughs> yeah, right on. So we can't really talk about training without talking about body language. We've talked about dog body language on this in in episodes of this podcast, and I think almost every podcast we've talked about some kind of body language. Do dolphins have body language? Does any marine life have have body language? Does a gecko have body language that you have to see, you know, like if they're feeling okay that day, if they want to, obviously you don't know that when you go work in a zoo. So do, is there, do they teach you all that kind of stuff or do you kind of guess it as you go? You just kind of make it up. A, a lot of wild animal, exotic animal body language I can see in dogs also. So, um, I, like the body shake, that full body shake that we talk about, you know, when, a, when an animal is kind of resetting, every wild animal does that. Every single one will shake off. Um, the other one that we commonly talk about in dogs is the zoomies where they run around like crazy ninnies with no control of their body. They just run and spin in circles and they right. jump on the bed and they jump down and they jump right. on the bed and they jump back down. Um, Penguin zoomies are the cutest thing you've I ever seen in your life. I didn't even know they would life. have zoomies. Exactly. And so many animals alike. So um, a lot of the body language overlaps. So what you see in your dogs, you can see that in animals. So, you know, they're, you know, are they going to lip lick? Are they going to stress yawn? It might depend on a species. Um, but are they going to, you know, um, you know, we talked about fight or flight. Are they going to go and be um, uh, avoidance? Absolutely. You will see an animal that will, you know, seek, seek hiding if they're trying to be avoidance. Um, it takes some time working with individual animals to start to see the, the really tiny, subtle body languages, just like with our dogs, you know, what the eye movement, the ear movement, the tail movement, um, the grand body language can be seen pretty easy in the zoo animals and pretty much by anybody. If you're looking for it, you're going to notice it. Um, but you do really have to work with an animal to start to see their individual little quirks even because even you know, my dog had a, le- a phantom left ear itch and that was how she would, um, you know, express that she was stressed. Um, I had two monkeys that were a pair bonds that I worked with and the boy was just as social as could be, but the girl had very distinct tail flicks. She would flick the tip of her little monkey tail and she was, she was stressed. She would not want to participate. Um, she had darty eyes, <laughs> but are you going to see that little t- teeny tiny tail flick from, you know, uh, as a, as a guest in the zoo looking? No, you're not. I and mean, if you do, you're just going to think it's a monkey, you know, moving her tail. 
you know, I, as her lead trainer at that time, am going to start to recognize some of those smaller things. So um, definitely our zoo animals can express um, both very obvious body language and both very, you know, individual, but it's not something you're taught per se. Like you don't walk in and say, you know, I want to know all about this animal's body language. They're going to teach you how to clean the poo up first before they teach you and how to shift them out so that you can clean the poo up before you get to learn about, you know, the body language. So really to me, body language is something that you really picked up because you were with that animal frequently. Um, you know, I find that really, really interesting that you say, you know, we do have to learn per animal while we can have a set of, this is what you're usually going to see. I mean, chunk who has horrible body language and her, I mean, when she's aroused, whether it be, Hey, I'm about to play with this dog nicely, or I'm aroused. Cause I want to go eat that dog. The body language is the same for her. Um, I mean, it, and it's, I'm like, you're confused, my friend. So, you know, it definitely <laughs> is per dog, but there, you know, are certain subtleties that I realize per dog that I work with where I'm like, Oh, this reactive dog isn't going to be able to handle it when they close their mouth and they lean forward or this reactive dog's tail shoots right up above its back and its hackles go up instantly. So those are the more subtle signs before the rest of the signs kind of accompany it. You know, we all know the barking and the lunging and, and, you know, all that, but you know, it, it, And that's one of the things that I enjoy working with reactive dogs so much because I like to narrow down those signs that happen before the major things, just, just the minute things, you know, like, you know, I keep going back to chunk, but she's my best teacher. I would say, um, you know, with her, if she can't handle a dog passing her for whatever reason, that particular dog, she closes her mouth and she leans forward. And as soon as I see that my head goes, you turn, we're out of here. You can't handle this dog for whatever reason. You know, we're, we're going to get out of here before you start barking and lunging and acting like a foolish dog that has zero training, even though you've had years of training. Um, so I always find that interesting and, you know, working with horses as well. Yeah. They're a flight animal, but there are aggressive horses that will not fight. They will choose fight. And you're like, Whoa, (laughs) why are you trying to um, rear up and stop me? Uh, You're supposed to be a flight animal when something scary happens. And you know, that's just the way it is. It's, you know, and it's again, varies in inner, inner species, inner specially, (laughs) same species, different body language. (laughs) Yes. Uh, and, uh, just to pounce on what you said a little bit there, um, I had worked with alligators at a different zoo and they never moved. And I was like, alligators have no personality and they have no body language because they don't move. And then you throw, you know, chicken in and then they might move to go get the chicken, but they were, otherwise they didn't move. And then I worked at a different facility and we trained the alligator. So now it wasn't just, you know, uh, a proper enclosure, but I was actually interacting with them. And boy, do they have personality and quirks and they just became one of my favorite animals because they are so unique and individual. And, and I really became, um, uh, we did, uh, uh, it's Disney. They're all about conservation education. So we did a lot of public shows on, uh, and, and we call them shows cause it's Disney, but it's just, you know, chats and, and whatnot encounters. And I would bring the gators out, little gator tots, you know, they're three foot long and we'd bring the little gator tots out and we didn't wrap their mouths because, you know, we didn't need to, but, um, you talk about body language. The one thing that I learned, um, I would always take the same gator out 
because I knew before she was going to kind of start throwing herself around because I could feel all the muscles in her body when I was holding her. And as soon as I would feel all her, her whole body, all her little muscles just go tight, I would gently just move her over here, let her have her little wiggle freak out, and then I would bring her back to the public for, you know, her, you know, uh, whether whatever they were doing with her. Sometimes we would let them uh, uh, touch them, you know, after the, the presentation. So very subtle body language is when you can feel the muscles tense before they do their little alligator shake off. <laughs> so Allie, is it stressful? getting new dogs. I know you do the, the live and learn, uh, programs at your house. Is it stressful having to every 10 days possibly, and sometimes even at the same time learning, um, you have two dogs that are different. Is it stressful trying to a remember which dog does what for subtle body language and then trying to figure out what dog does what? No. Um, I mean, I'm a behavior geek. I love it. (laughs) I love getting the new dog and learning everything I can about them in, you know, however long I have them. And I always say you have to get to know that individual dog. Um, and no, I don't have a problem with remembering which dog does what. Sometimes I have an issue remembering which dog does what when I'm trying to convey it to the owners. But um, generally, you know, I'm, I'm going to forget a human before I forget a dog. Like, uh, I'll get like, Hey, do you remember this dog that you saw? And I'm like, um, tell me, you know, give me the info. And they're like, it was this person. This was their address. Well, I'm like, no, 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 no. What's the dog's name? What was the dog's issues? I'll recap everything that we did, but you know, that's why I'm in this. I mean, I enjoy taking individual dogs and learning about them and learning how to, how to help them become the best version of themselves. So Amber did working with zoo animals help you become a better dog trainer or did you kind of have to scrap whatever you learned in the zoos and and you had to learn again how to work with dogs? Uh, The only thing that I had to really learn differently with dogs was their behavior. I did not know dog behavior at all prior to Karen Pryor Academy. That was where I got my introduction to the dog behavior. And then secondly, uh, how to work with the humans and how to um, get them involved and how to explain my you know, my natural skill set of what I've been doing for 18 years to, you know, an owner that doesn't want to learn how to do this professionally. And then thirdly, how to do the management side, because that animal isn't a home. And if I am going to do a training program for you, we have to be doing something with the dog in the meantime, while that training is happening. Uh, But the training itself did not change. And I did feel like I had a really strong foundation of training going of of just training going into the dogs. And in fact, I was a little cocky in the first unit at Karen Pryor Academy. So I'm like, yeah, yeah, shaping, capturing, got it, got it, got it. And then we got into the stuff that I didn't know. There was also things that we did with dogs that we never did with the with the exotic animals, um, modifier cues and things like that. We just, it was just not something that we did. We were training, um, sorry, modifier cue would be distinguishing big from small, left from right, which we do with our dog. We take our, our uh, dogs and we teach them, go fetch the green ball. Whereas a, a zoo animal, your primary training is husbandry, meaning cooperation with the trainer, cooperation with the veterinarian, making their zoo life comfortable and, and you know, voluntary, while dogs were doing completely different you know, agility and things like that. So that was a very, once I got further along in in the KPA program, that was very interesting and new knowledge for me. I don't think I know the answer to this, but what was your second species in KPA? A cat. (laughs) 
Not, not what I expected. No, no, because I was already pretty well removed from the zoo uh, availability at that point. But uh, yeah, it was cat. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, and I think that that is a, a good point that you bring up. You know about being ready to train dogs because you were working with zoo animals. Um, you know the concepts pretty much the same. But I find starting with dogs and then well, I guess technically I started with horses, but starting with dogs in a professional capacity and then being assigned to work with that second species and then being like, this is so cool, especially because horse training is a completely different world than, um, you know, your, your positive reinforcement dog training. So, you know, the first time I clicker trained this huge horse that is one of those aggressive horses, I was like, this is the best thing ever. I did not know that this could be a thing. And, you know, then I was like, let me train this animal and let me train this animal and let me, you know, just train every animal I can get my hands on anytime that I can get my hands on them because it's so, while the concepts are the same, you know, you're constantly just learning new things and new ways that some can apply to your dog species and some cannot. So is that why you got ferrets? Um, yeah, I mean, they're they're educational ferrets. Um, I asked my dad if I could write off um, Havocs uh, in <laughs> obstruction surgery because they're educational ferrets. Um, I mean, they, they do help me in my training. They help me with introductions. They help me with um, squirrel counter conditioning. Um, they also have their own set of skills. I mean, they're up to, I think, five behaviors on cue and we're starting scent work with them, which is pretty cool. Thank you for joining us for episode five. We hope you enjoyed learning how different zoos work and how training in zoos is a lot like training your dog. Thanks to Amber Walker for joining us. If you'd like to reach out to Amber, her email is amber at aitrainers.com. If you are enjoying what you're hearing and haven't yet, please subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us on and also share our podcast on social media. Join our Facebook group at Who's Training Who to chat about dogs, topics we talk about in the show, and to share funny or cool things dealing with dogs. We are open to whatever you want to talk about that deals with dogs. If you have a topic idea or an ask a trainer question, please comment in our Facebook group or email info at waggytails.pet. Thanks for listening to Who's Training Who. Mm-hmm.